Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 662. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. If you're watching on YouTube, click on that little super thanks button underneath the video if you want to throw a few pennies my way. You can also support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll, and of course you can purchase one or 20 classes there. That keeps this podcast free of charge. You get great content. It's a win-win. And I've got a class. If you're listening to the show on July 5th, 2022, it's the last day to get $60 off of my newest class, Reading Abraham Lincoln. You're going to want that class. You'll never see it for this price again. Now, how do you get the coupon? Well, you got to be on the email list to get the coupon. If you've enrolled at McClanahan Academy, you get coupons that way. But you can also get on my regular email list. Just go to brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. You'll get on my email list then, but you also get a free ebook out of it, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can click on the support tab if you're at brianmcclanahan.com. You throw a few pennies my way that way. Click on the shop tab, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share the podcast around on social media. It's a great way to grow the audience. I do appreciate all your support. And send me those show requests. I want to know what you want to hear. All right. This is an interesting topic. Um, We're following it up July 5th. Here it is. We had our July 4th Independence Day episode yesterday, and here we are on July 5th, and we're talking about what it means to be an American. Now, it's kind of the same thing with what we looked at yesterday, right? You had Gerald Ford's speech in 1976 on the bicentennial of the 4th of July. And of course, remember, the 4th of July is the day that where John Hancock signed the Declaration. It was actually voted on on July 2nd. John Adams thought it would be July 2nd. We'd celebrate independence, but it became July 4th. But regardless, what does this mean to be an American? When those men met in Philadelphia in 1776, there was no consensus of Americanism. We had 13 independent colonies, which became 13 free and independent states. When I say they're independent colonies, they all have their own colonial legislatures. Massachusetts could not govern South Carolina, and South Carolina could not govern Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania could not govern Maryland, and Virginia could not govern New York, or vice versa. Right? We had 13 independent colonial legislatures, 13 inde- free and independent states, as Jefferson called them, equal to the state of Great Britain. So was there an Americanism? In 1776, we had Gerald Ford say that one of the most important things was national unity. That's garbage. We know Benjamin Franklin said in in 1754 that the colonies were too provincial. They weren't going to get together. They had too many of their own provincial interests. And that was the case even in 1776. 
We know that Northerners and Southerners had dramatically different political cultures, dramatically different social cultures. New Englanders commented on South Carolinians coming into the Philadelphia State House or Pennsylvania State House looking ostentatious, whereas they were very reserved. That puritanical part of New England was certainly part of their political and social fabric. And of course, that carried forward even into the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries. We are living with political Puritans today that are very much part and parcel of that group of Americans. We had another type of American culture. It was, as David Hackett Fisher points out, this Virginian, this very cavalier society. And that cavalier society, of course, was dominant in places like the Tidewater of Virginia, even into the low country of South Carolina. South Carolina, though, maybe had its own little part because you had so many people there come from Barbados at one point or another. And so they had their own distinct kind of low country culture there. But then you had the frontier areas. You had the back, the, uh, the, uh, the backwoods areas, right? The, the kind of uh, backcountry part of the British Isles. You had the, the Scots and the Irish and uh, the Welsh and other people. And then also some Germans who had moved into these areas who certainly were uh, much more interested in uh, resisting kind of a a colonial elite than anything else. And of course, then you mix in the religious element to all this. So my point in all this is you had distinctive cultures in America, Quaker culture, Cavalier culture, Puritan culture, and then kind of a backcountry culture, which is you know very Celtic, but not necessarily Celtic. So you had all of that making this hodgepodge of America. America had to have a decentralized central authority because it had to absorb these separate political cultures. And of course, culture being more than just politics, but it had to absorb these things. So we've started to wrestle with this idea of an American nation. Of course, George Washington talked about an American nation, and so did other people, you know, Alexander Hamilton. And most of the, they, there were nationalists in the founding generation who talked about this American nation. Without question, they were there. But most people didn't think of it that way. They thought of it as a federal republic. In fact, even Alexander Hamilton used the term confederation as synonymous with federation. It was a federal republic designed to absorb these differences, these political differences. But when you get to the 1860s and you get Lincoln, Lincoln starts talking, starts speaking in this terms of you know national government. Now, again, there were people even to that point that used this term. It's people, what? But they said, these people said national. These people said nation. They were there, okay? Don't get me wrong about this. But Lincoln transforms America into a national entity by rhetoric alone in many ways, but also because the Congress started acting that way. Everything had to come from the center. The states were emasculated. The states were made subservient to the center. Now, it hadn't always been this way, but this is how the general government began to operate. Now, the funny thing about all that, of course, is that nothing changed structurally. This is where you get Alan Gelzo when he stands up and he says, well, you know, all these, nullification is illegal, secession is illegal, and blah, blah, blah. And, but the problem is, that would all be true if we had a unitary state in America, which we never had, and nothing that happened after 1865 except a war did anything to change that. This is the real issue we have. We had a war that didn't change anything structurally. Now, if the Republicans had come in and they had, uh, say, gotten rid of the 10th Amendment, 
they had completely changed the structure of the American government, then you could argue that we had a, a real shift, that everything that the South was talking about in 1861 and everything that New Englanders talked about in, in 1794 and 1801 and 1804 and 1812 and 1815 and 1846, 1848, everything Southerners talked about in the 1830s and 1820s and 1850s and then finally in the 1860s, all of that would have been swept away because we would have structurally changed the United States government. But you know what didn't happen? That. Now, we got the Civil War Amendments. One, of course, gave former slave men and also free blacks the right to vote. One ended slavery. Right. So the 14th is the catch. And I've talked about it on this podcast before, how the 14th is used as the vehicle to nationalize everything, even though that was never the intent of the 14th Amendment as we know from the historical record. okay, But that's the vehicle. So you could say that the 14th makes it a national, a true national government, which it didn't. Now you could also point to other amendments through time. The 17th Amendment, which abolished the state control of the Senate. That maybe did it. But what we've seen, of course, is that the, the government has essentially stayed the same. And we know, the left knows, it's just the right doesn't really want to recognize this, but the left knows that we've never really had an American nation. An American nation has never really existed in, in its entire history. And even to this day, when you have all these different types of people that are now in the United States, whether it's uh, race or religion or background, whatever it is that makes you want to say, or even political culture that makes all these people different. I can still make a case there's a distinctive South and there is a distinctive New England and that New England, that spirit has kind of spread to other parts. And there are people in the South who act like a bunch of New Englanders. But regardless, you could still make a case that you have all these political cultures. And that's, that's something that's going on. But the left knows this. This is why they call it, you know, they, they bristle against the melting pot idea. But the, the conservatives have long pushed for this melting pot, centralized, one people theory. One people. That, of course, goes back to the nationalists of the 18th and 19th century, which, of course, the Jeffersonians took apart skillfully and, I think, conclusively that we ever had that. But regardless, this thing still exists. And so uh, when you look at American history, you find basically one period of time where we didn't have the view that we have a distinctive North and the South and all these things. One period of time, and that would be essentially the World War II period. Now, you could say it stretches a little before that and then maybe a little after that into the 1960s, and maybe you get back into the 1930s. Maybe you could even take that back to World War I as Southerners were trying to be accepted back into this Union. They fought valiantly for the United States in the Spanish-American War in 1798 and then, of course, World War I in 1917. But... By the 1930s, you certainly saw this push for nationalization more than at any time in American history. And, of course, immigration was at all-time lows in the 1930s. The Great Depression did a lot to do that. But you had very few people coming to the United States. And so for about a 30-year period, beginning in the 1930s into the 1960s, you saw a real nationalization of the American polity. But it fractured into pieces in the 1960s. 
Some of that had to do with politics. Some of it had to do with a massive wave of immigration coming in the United States. We know in the early 20th century, the only area of immigration that was left alone was essentially Latin American and Central American immigration. Immigration from Europe was was heavily restricted. Um, So that was the only area that was able to flood in. Uh, But beginning of the 1960s, you saw much more of it. Right. So then you started to see a change, a shift in uh, this idea of a unified American people at that point. And of course, it's only carried furthermore. And the civil rights movement and uh, black Americans saying that they had always been treated as second class citizens. So they don't fit into the American nation idea and all these things. So you start to see it fracture. And that's where we are today. So you have this piece in Chronicles magazine by Grant Havers, A History of American Identities. So this gets into identity. And it's a review of a book, After Nationalism, Being American in an Age of Division, by Samuel Goldman, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. The first line says this, what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean, right? So I've talked a lot about this. I wrote about it at Chronicles, and you have this proposition nation. We talked to Gerald Ford. What does it mean to be American? Here's her identity. It's the belief and the proposition that all men are created equal and conceived in liberty. That's American. We have a we have a creed that keeps us together. A creed. But is that really what it means to be an American? It's just a creed? That's all? We're unified behind a creed and some type of common history? Is that enough? So Havers continues, there is nothing new about this question, according to a recent book, After Nationalism, by Samuel Goldman. Goldman has written a highly readable, well-researched, and persuasive account of the contexts and conflicts that have shaped different responses to this perennial question. The one certainly that Americans can retain about their national identity, according to Goldman, is that there has never been unanimity about it. He writes, quote, We do not only disagree about how much Pluribus is compatible with Republican government. We also disagree about what kind of unum we should become. This observation is a fateful one. For if history cannot provide guidance as to what unites Americans as a people, can they present? Can the present age of conflict and polarization lend any clarity? So, if there is no history that provides, you know, this this American people, and this is well, there shouldn't be, right? This is. <laughs> This is uh, John Taylor of Caroline saying that America for Americans is like utopia for utopians. It doesn't exist. There's no Americans. There are people of Virginia. There are people of Pennsylvania. There are people of Massachusetts. Those are the states. There are people of those states, but there's no American people because that would mean there's one American culture, and that's simply not true. Now, you could say because of years of homogenization in America with you know kind of this Midwestern influence by New England view. And of course, this is input by Lincoln. We're going to have Lincoln as a symbol. You can say there's maybe more of it today than there was when Taylor wrote those words in the early 19th century. But regardless, uh, this, is, this is a big question. So Havers continues, Americans face hard questions today. Should we, the people, find our our identity in specific institutions in a particular place or seek out an organic and previously existing community? In other words, should Americans create new identities or build on old ones? Most importantly, who exactly among we, the people, should have the power to define what American means for Americans? Well, no one should, right? Uh, From the center, this is the issue, from the center, 
That should never be the case. Goldman focuses on three ambitious attempts in chronological order, the covenant, the crucible, and the creed. Besides serving as attempts to address the questions of nationality, they also share two other features. First, they express their ideas and themes in biblical or religious language. Second, in the implementation of their vision, the adherents have at times coerced or excluded some Americans. In the process, all three narratives have indulged in myths that often collided with the reality of their times. So then he's going to go through these things. Now, again, I think any type of book that starts from the position that there's an American nation is flawed from the beginning. Because we never really had it. Except for that very short, maybe three-decade period from 1932 to 1962, 63, somewhere in there. And then it all starts to fall apart. And you could say that the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Who, I mean, Kennedy was, was a northerner of northerners, right? I mean, he, but there was kind of a national unity about Kennedy in some ways. Um, he's World War II generation. And then he's assassinated and we get Lyndon Johnson, who was divisive. And that division carries forward. I mean, look, Nixon was trying to create this, but you know, Nixon's scandals and everything else created a certain environment that wouldn't lend to that. And then, of course, you have Gerald Ford, 1976, just three years after Nixon resigns with this speech and Philadelphia where he's trying to create this American unity, this American identity. Now, Reagan might have put some of that stuff back together. You know, Reagan wins in a landslide in 84 that any modern president would love to have. Now, this is why modern Republicans like to go back to Reagan. There's kind of Reagan unity. Maybe. But really, in reality, we have not had any type of American nation for most of American history. The first attempt at defining national unity, the symbol of the covenant, has unmistakably religious origins. Goldman writes, quote, emerging from New England, it ultimately sought to constitute all of America as an offshoot of the Puritan experience. Well, I mean, I agree with this. There is a, there is a tremendous amount of cultural imperialism that comes out of New England, and that city upon a hill vision would infiltrate all kinds of things. Even Lincoln, and I'm going to say this, July 5th, last day to get that class, he was critical of Northern Illinois as being Puritan or Yankee Illinois. He called it Yankee Illinois. And then you had Southern Illinois, which was different. The Yankees were controlling Northern Illinois. He called them Yankees. Lincoln actually called them that, which is funny. Uh, but this is certainly part of this. In other words, it presented an essentially Anglo-Protestant-English settlers of the Atlantic coast with a special relationship with the God of Abraham. Americans with these Anglo-Protestant English settlers. New, New Englanders were a chosen, new chosen people entitled to populate and rule a specific piece of territory. This obvious debt to the Bible did not contradict the novelty of the project. What John Winthrop famously called a city upon a hill would be a new society consisting of citizens dedicated to the practice of Christian charity. By placing the community as a whole in the vertical relationship to God, covenant and also establishes a horizontal responsibility among its members. This matrix of mutual obligation is the subject of John Winthrop's famous A Model of Christian Charity. And that was a quote from the actual book. But um, certainly this is one vision of Americanism, right? This New England vision of Americanism, which in some ways has a Lincolnian element to it, right? So you have that. This particular vision of Americanism is going to come into conflict with the South. 
For the earliest American defenders of the covenant, this ethic of charity began at home and limited to true believers or visible saints who retained an Anglo-Protestant identity. Although this Christian republicanism paid lip service to the separation of church and state in the 17th century, political participation was restricted to pious Calvinists. Still, this symbol was so powerful and enduring that it captured the imagination of Americans who were spread across all 13 colonies during the War of Independence. Now again, I would say this is not necessarily true. You could find it dominant in New England, but Southerners weren't on board with most of this stuff. The New Republic, born out of revolution, was a covenantal nation dedicated to the worship of God, the preservation of order and liberty, and the enjoyment of shared prosperity. Eh, not really. I mean, again, this is, this is uh, looking at the American founding uh, backwards. So you're not taking into account the decentralized structure of America at that particular point. And there was a different culture in the South that was not on board with this, what he's calling Anglo, Anglo-Protestant identity, more like a Puritan identity. Southerners were not Puritans. To be sure, the universalist themes of this covenant did not obscure this particular, the particular interests of New England. Yankee nationalists who opposed the evil of slavery rank, rankled the South. Likewise, New Englanders who preferred a small republic constrained by a shared faith and defined territory pitted against Americans set on migrating West. Opposition to the War of 1812, Jeffersonian democracy, and Jacksonian populism also set New Englanders apart from their fellow Americans who sought their destiny in the wilderness. As waves of Catholic immigrants increased, Puritan bigotry and suspicion of popish plots also intensified. Notwithstanding this Fratchick's history, which of course is <laughs> the entire history of that period of time, resisting New England nationalism, which is what's going on there, right? I mean, look, Daniel Webster was a New England nationalist. He was always a sectionalist. He used nationalism under the guise of uh, New England sectionalism, and that's what you had. This was the resistance to that. Notwithstanding this fractious history, Goldman appreciates the covenantal tradition for achievements that both the crucible and, cre- and creedal traditions failed to attain. He writes, quote, Despite its tendency to de- degenerate into Protestant supremacy or ethnic bigotry, though, the appeal of the covenant had endured. What explains this fact? Covenant theology provides a way of avoiding the abstractions of an ideological or creedal nationalism moving without moving too far in the direction of blood and soil. Moreover, quote, it was the most coherent attempt to develop American identity from within English identity and Protestant political theology. At its best, it combined a generous hope for national flourishing with a sophisticated appreciation for the social and economic preconditions of self-government. Yet, hopes for the revival of this tradition are implausible in Goldman's judgment given the huge conflict between the covenant's strict theological morality and the diverse secularity of, of modern America. The next tradition, the symbol of the crucible, first entered the American consciousness alongside the idea of the melting pot. In 1782, the French immigré, J. Hector Saint Jean de Crevacour, described the New World as a place in which individuals of all nations are melted into a new race of men, whose labors and posterity will one day cause great changes in the world. This theme received a more openly theological articulation in Israel, uh, Zangwill's play The Melting Pot, 1908. Zangwill described America as God's crucible, the melting pot, where the great melting pot, where all the races of Europe are melting and reforming. So again, uh, I mean, I mentioned this at the beginning. This is the, this is the melting pot ideology, which really didn't have a lot of currency except for about a 30-year period. And that was fostered by the Great Depression and World War II. 
Although the origin of this symbolism is arguably biblical, Goldman doubts that the covenant and the crucible share much in common. While the covenant is oriented towards patriarchs who establish the sacred community, the crucible envisions a new kind of human being living in a new world in which arbitrary borders and boundaries will be dissolved. He also agrees with Herman Melville's interpretation of this aspiration as an inversion of the biblical narrative. Goldman writes, quote, rather than nations succeeding human unity, unity will replace national division. He also quotes Melville's observation that all tribes and peoples are forming into a federated whole, and there is a future which shall see the estranged children of Adam restored as to the old hearthstone in Eden. Melville's interesting because Melville opposed the war. He saw it as a problem of centralized power. I mean, he, he did. I mean, Herman Melville was not pro-war. His family were Democrats. They hated Abraham Lincoln. The desire to return to Eden does not literally emulate the covenant, which succeeds the fall. However, the possibility of new beginnings is central to both the covenant and the crucible, whether they point to a new nation or a new unity. Of course, new beginnings have their destructive side as well. The Civil War drafted millions of immigrants into a new American identity, forged by an apocalypse of fire and blood. What John O'Sullivan famously called Manifest Destiny justified in the name of Providence overseas imperialism, e.g. the Spanish-American War, as well as westward expansion. Uh, I think it's a little short-sighted to say that was Sullivan, that was imperialism, that was something else. But certainly this, um, you could say it's Manifest Destiny, or, uh, I mean, this idea of the proposition nation, right? I mean, that would be more powerful in spreading American democracy to other parts of the world than John O'Sullivan was in the continent. But O'Sullivan was pushing that westward movement. Here, Goldman downplays resemblance between the theme of chosenness within the covenantal tradition and the progressivist rationale behind the melting pot. The United States was the instrument of this divine process, not a chosen people set apart from other nations, but the whole of mankind reaching consciousness of itself. Whatever the differences here, however, the belief in a God who commands one people to bring about his providential design is a persistent pattern within American history. Despite the universalism within the, this redemptory mission, however, not all Americans were welcome to join. In addition to black slaves and Native Americans, whites who lacked an English ancestry faced discrimination. Defenders of the melting pot, as Goldman admits, relied on Protestant texts and assumptions in the hope that American Catholics would eventually abandon their mother church. Universalism, once again, had its limits. Ultimately, the melting pot could not melt all the cultural and religious differences that defined Americans. The final symbol that is defined American nationality is the creed, more specifically the American creed, a term popularized by the Swedish sociologist Gunnar Myrdal, arises from the assumption that principles are the basis of unity, not ethnicity, culture, or religion. This creed consisted of the belief in equal rights for all, despite the fact that many Americans, especially black Americans, had not been as beneficiaries. The high-water mark of the creed was World War II and the ensuing Cold War. During these times of conflict, the creed served two purposes. At home, it pointed toward the realization of racial equality through gradual but consistent reform. Goldman writes, Abroad, it involved the defense of democracy against totalitarian enemies, first fascists, then communists. So what, what I think is important here is that He's separating these things out, but in many ways, they're linked together. In fact, you could say the first, the covenant, created the other two. Even though, I mean, so there are differences. There's a break here, there's a break here. But the covenant, the puritanical, the Yankee mission, the Yankee imperial mission, created the other two. They would not have been there without it. The American, the nationalism of all of this is only created because of that New England sectionalism. 
Southerners were not as interested. Southerners were interested in a union, a real union that respected differences. This is the point. This is Calhoun's entire point. It respects differences. He was a unionist that respected differences of people. A broad and involved defense of democracy against, yeah, first fascists and communists. In ideological terms, the creed was identical to mid-century liberalism. Out of this historical context arose the belief that America was formed by an idea, in the words of Hans Kohn, not by blood, soil, or historical memory. In today's political parlance, America is a proposition nation. In retrospect, as Goldman shows, World War II and to a lesser extent the Cold War were the last times in which America enjoyed a unity of purpose to which the creed provided a moral legitimacy. I agree with that 100%. I just said that at the beginning. But um, it, this didn't come out of uh, Khan. Khan. It came out of Lincoln, right? I mean, this is Lincolnian nationalism. This is something, This, I think in some ways, you're, you're looking for things that aren't there. There are historical, American historical examples of this stuff. Like the Covenant and the Crucible, the American Creed's defenders appealed to a biblical tradition that preceded progressivist liberalism. Although, as Goldman points out, G.K. Chesterton worried that American Creed was an Erstas religion that threatened Christianity, uh, Murdahl expressed the opposite worry, that political leaders are conscientiously deducing the American Creed out of the Bible. Well, in so many ways, I think Chesterton was, was right. It was a religion. Lincoln called it that. In the Lyceum Address, Lincoln called... This American nationalism, a religion, a political religion. You need no one else to show that the creed, as he's calling it, comes out of somewhere historical than Lincoln. In fact, Lincoln is the glue that holds all these discordant things together. Now, it used to be Washington. He was a symbol of America, but Washington was too decentralist. Washington was a nationalist, but he was too decentralist. He recognized New England and South as being different, thought they should work together, but he always recognized the differences. They needed each other, but they're always going to be different. Lincoln didn't think that at all. They all just they were all just one. The American people. The novelty of the creed lay in the fact that, unlike the crucible, its focus on high principle did not require the elimination of differences that the melting pot demanded. Okay, go back to Gerald Ford's speech from yesterday. We all believe in equality, and these principles doesn't mean we're, we don't, we're not different, but we believe in these principles. It was, a, it was a proposition born nation, a creed, as he says. Unlike the covenantal tradition, creedal nationalism promised that the nation could absorb so much immigration because in its essence lay in ideas rather than in blood, soil, or religious confession. In pragmatic terms, America's leadership was under pressure to create a universalist message that could be an ideological counterpoint to the appeal of Marxist universalism during the Cold War era. So here is our ideology to combat their ideology. Yet the initial promise and advantages of the creed were no match for the cosmetic conflicts that shook the American psyche during the Cold War era. The underlying disagreements about American meaning and purpose, which both the Civil Rights Movement and the Vietnam War exposed, left open a wound on the American mind. The search for a creedal nation was a failure, a casualty of these conflagrations. Even before the tumults of the 1960s, the creed inspired a dangerous lack of humility among its defenders. Goldman highlights Lincoln's famous warning, warning that Americans were an almost chosen people who should avoid the confident assumption that they had a special claim on divine flavor, favor or understood God's ways. This has often been lost in other leaders in American history. Now, again, but Lincoln, Lincoln believed in 
politics as a religion. He said it 30 years before he became president. He said it. I cover that in reading Lincoln. Goldman writes, not all of Lincoln's admirers shared his this religious and moral caution. Inspired by Protestant uh, theology, many supporters of the Union developed an account of America as the Redeemer nation that would determine the fate of liberty for the whole world. Exactly right. This was uh, the, the point of American imperialism. This is why they're looking at Cretan independence in the 1860s. This is what was happening. It was this transferal of remaking the South. His truth is marching on to the whole world. So all these things go together. The Puritan Yankee vision of America goes together with the other two. You can't have it without it. Woodrow Wilson, a great admirer of Lincoln, had little doubt that he himself was an instrument of God's providence. The hopes of Lincoln became certainties for Wilson. In Goldman's words, Wilson turned Lincoln's famous description of the Union as the last best hope of Earth into a fighting faith. But it wasn't just Wilson who did this. American imperialists were there before Wilson, but Wilson transferred it into Europe. Like most political religions, Wilson's own version of the American creed has its nasty side. Political centralization, official propaganda, and the repression of dissent became features of Wilson's presidency during World War I. Like the Covenant and the Crucible, the creed inspired coercion as well as idealism. What Goldman lists as the reasons for the failure of creedal nationalism could, bro- could broadly apply to the Covenant and the Crucible as well. Simultaneous commitments to liberty and equality, the pursuit of justice and respect for the Constitution, the universality of moral principles, and particularly of the nation, did not entirely hang together. In fact, every time a particular group of Americans sees itself as the new elect or or chosen people that defines identity for everyone else in America, there is bound to be conflict and even civil war. If there is any pattern to the usage of biblical symbolism, even in secularized form, it is that Americans have fundamentally disagreed on how to apply quasi-religious credos to the public square. Well, you know, the federal union was designed to handle these differences because we never had a national government to begin with. You see, what this piece is actually pointing out and what this book kind of backhandedly does is show that American nationalism is a farce. It's always been the fly in the ointment. That Americans have never been a nationalist people. What Eric Vogelin called derailments of religious symbols are part and parcel of the American experience. I'm not suggesting that Americans should repudiate the biblical tradition and the uh, attendant desire for new beginnings. Rather, they should cultivate a realistic skepticism toward today's political and corporate leaders who are only too happy to employ quasi-religious language that sanctions a revolutionary politics to cleanse the world of sins, both past and present. In the last chapter, Goldman favors two options that stop short of grandiose plans to create a new national identity. First, he defends a constitutional patriotism, which good creedal fashion emphasizes constitutionalism, the rule of law, and civic equality. These principles would provide set, quote, rules of consciousness or conscience for people who otherwise don't share much. Second, he desires a republic in which there is a variety of overlapping and sometimes contending groups that reflect and cultivate different concepts of identity, responsibility, and purpose. He goes on to say that, quote, political parties, labor unions, and religious communities must be allowed to pursue their clashing views of public policy, economic issues, and the meaning of life. It is through their conflict that we will discover the terms on which we can live together. This is the problem. What Goldman is doing is ignoring the federal structure, right? You can do that with a federal structure. None of that. We don't need a center. We don't need nationalism. What we need is real federalism. This is the problem with all of this. 
When you operate from a position where you're saying nationalism is the end goal, you're always going to undermine what America actually was. We don't have a singular republic. We don't need a religious creed for an American people. There aren't any American people. And yes, blood, soil, and culture, all these things matter for peoples in different areas. Now, of course, Americans are transient now, much more than they ever have been before. So some of that stuff is wearing away. But the essence of culture is people that have been in areas for long periods of time, and they don't leave. Those things matter. Sadly, the obstacles to this proposal to strengthen institutions of contestation are far more formidable than anything that the covenant, crucible, or creed ever faced. The leftist elect that governs America today is not only unprecedented in power through the Leviathan state and social media to define what national identity and conscious uh, consensus ought to be, but it also seeks to Im- impose a neo-Puritan intolerance that is utterly devoid of the forgiveness or charity once central to the covenantal tradition. Now, um, I would say the Puritans weren't very tolerant to begin with, but exactly this is what I mean. We're facing a, a new Puritanism. I've talked about it on this podcast before. These are the political Puritans. And with the centralized power, a national power, all that stuff becomes part of it. So the clamor for the center is always the issue. So what we have to do is decentralize. It's think locally, act locally. You can avoid these things if you're thinking locally and acting locally. In order to enjoy a rebirth of autonomous institutions that seek to define what America is, the leftist elect would have to give up its self-appointed role as the guardians of identity, which is an unlikely prospect to say the least. Conversely, a majority of Americans would have to launch a counter-revolution against these entrenched interests. Although Goldman refrains from recommending this radical action, his invaluable study of history subtly reminds his fellow Americans that those who have the power to define identity for all also have the power to curb the liberty of those who dissent from this imposition. Yes, but again, not if you're thinking locally and acting locally. The states really do have all the power in this system. And when they start to use it, the center buckles because it can't do anything about it. Consent of the governed. This is, I mean, Ford did say it. When there's no more consent, there's no more government. It doesn't exist. And so consent, as consent wanes and people say enough, that's it. So, Anyways, I, this was sent to me by a listener. So this was a listener-generated episode. I thought it was really interesting. Of course, Chronicles Magazine is a great magazine. If you haven't subscribed to Chronicles, you should. And uh, you'll get stuff like this and that. But uh, this Grant Haver's piece is really good. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.